0: show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 25th, 2018. This is episode 2299 of the Survival Podcast. And we have a kind of back to basics show today. In fact, it's called... The basics of being prepared for most things, part one, I I think every once in a while with some of the advanced topics and the different things that we talk about, and I love the variety we've created in this show, but sometimes I feel like we do get a little bit too far away from the core mission of the show, which is people living a more prepared life, and all of the other stuff we talk about is parts of doing that, but what about the basic preparedness for when shit hits the fan? That's what we're going to talk about today. And this is actually, again, part one, so this is going to be a two-part series. And the reason it's going to be a two-part series is today we're going to focus mainly on the five, uh, six primary areas of survival need, food, water, shelter, energy, health, sanitation, and security. Um, And then... There's a whole other additional component to it that's more of the logistics, and that will be in part two, because when I put this together, even keeping it very, very basic, I realized it would go very, very long, and it just doesn't make sense to have shows that are two and a half hours long. So we're going to stick to the the six primary survival needs today, and we're going to take a look at disaster commonality, impact, scale, and probability. We're going to talk about the fact that it's non-preppers that are crazy, not us, And how preparedness really is the only responsible thing for adults to do. And we'll get to all of that more in just a moment. Before we dig into today's topic, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal. Hey, you want to be prepared? Then go over to Safe Castle, the original survival podcast sponsor, the first company that ever sponsored us. That was a long time ago, friends, almost 10 years now since Safe Castle signed up as our first sponsor this would be about nine and a half years, and uh, <clears throat> they've been one of us ever since, and that's loyalty. SafeCastle has all the stuff you need for your prepping, uh, from guns to gardens, from the tactical to practical, and anything in between a lot of stuff that we'll talk about today, you can get it at SafeCastle.com. and You probably should since they've been a supporter of the show for so gone long. And next up today, we have Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Trust me, we're going to talk about water today. And, yeah, water filtration is something I'll talk about, and filtering your water in a disaster can be life or death. But the reality is, you know, water is something you should be filtering all the time anyway. If there's something wrong with your water and you're on a well, you don't know until somebody gets sick. And it could have been perfectly fine a few weeks ago, and then something could have contaminated it. On the other side, if you are drinking city water, township water, etc., and something goes wrong with it, you don't know about it till you get sick or enough other people get sick that they tell you about it. Which means by the time they tell you about it, you've already been drinking water with something in it you didn't want to drink. Plus, there's things in our water in general that maybe aren't the best things in the world for us. A Berkey will take care of that. It's a good-looking piece of equipment. It really can't fail. It's got no moving parts. It looks great wherever you put it. Uh, it's easy to use. It's easy to maintain. And by the price per gallon, it's about the most affordable option you can get with taking care of your own water treatment. And if you're going to get one, get it from the Berkey Guy. Why the heck would you go anywhere else? You've decided you want a Berkey. Why would you go anywhere but the Berkey Guy? He's been doing it a long time. For longer than I've been doing this show, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason has been the Berkey Guy. His website is directive21.com. He has a discount for you guys that are members of the MSB. Uh, he's got a lot of really great other stuff for your prepping, too, again, at directive21.com. And with that, let's take a look at this day in history, going back to the year 1789. On this day in 1789, the Bill of Rights passes Congress. The first Congress of the United States approves twelve amendments to the United States Constitution and sends them to the state for ratification. These bills, known as the Bill of Rights, were designed to protect basic right of U.S. citizens guaranteeing freedom of speech, press, assembly, and exercise of religion, and the right to fair and legal procedure to bear arms, and that powers not delegated to the federal government were reserved for the states or the people. And you heard me right. I said the United States Congress approves 12 amendments to the Constitution. What the heck is that about? 12 amendments? I mean, any fool knows there's 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, right? Well, or 10 amendments to the Bill of Rights, the, the original group of amendments. Well, actually, there were 17 amendments initially proposed in Congress. And through dillying and dallying and haggling and talking and discussion in the political process, they were whittled down to 12. Yes, 12 amendments. If I could do my count uh, voice from uh, Muppets, I would do it, but I don't have that ability. 12, 12 amendments, right? Um, There were 12. You know, we're really big on the First and Second Amendments. That's the the two that people seem to invoke the most. If this would have passed, the First Amendment, free speech, assembly, etc., would be the third. And the second, right to keep and bear arms, would be the fourth The original First Amendment uh, stated a formula for determining the size of the House of Representatives based on the population of the United States in 1789. That amendment could be revived, but it wouldn't be practical in our current time. The original Second Amendment was about determining when Congress can change its pay. It took a very long time, but the original Second Amendment became the 27th Amendment when it was ratified in 1992. So there you go. There's something you didn't know, and that all happened on this day in 1789. Uh, All 12 of those amendments did get out of Congress. They did not receive enough support to be ratified by the states, though. Uh, Just a little civics lesson there. It's probably a good thing for people in this day and age where people think that You know, things can just happen overnight and people are going to die. Ah, Yeah, the nonsense that happens when we have, let's say, a Supreme Court justice nominated or something like that. Anyway, with that, um, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. And what I'm going to do, guys, I am going to make a completely non-commercial version of this show. It'll have a little disclaimer at the beginning talking about the podcast and where people can learn more about it. But it'll pretty much be what you're about to hear, and it'll stop at the end before we get into item of the day and stuff like that, just so you know. And uh, I'll make that available in the show notes today. Um, I'll probably put it on a page by itself somewhere or something like that. Uh, but I, I'll probably suggest that maybe you hold off until both this part and the part that will be done next Tuesday are done so that you can uh, share both of those with people that really need to hear the message of preparedness, and we might lose them if they have to sit through intro segments and the commercial content of the show in general. And real quick before we dig into the meat of the show today, just a real quick reminder again, um, tickets for the TSP18 Nine Mile Farm Workshop, which is going to be awesome and off the hook, Go on sale Saturday morning this week. That's the 29th of of September. Is that right? 29th? Yeah, the 29th of September, 8 a.m. Central Standard Time, CST. If you live in EST or PST or mst or whatever you need to make sure you adapt accordingly or you're gonna miss out i'm telling you this will probably be one of the fastest sellouts we've ever had to a workshop and remember you got to be an msb member so if you think you're an msb member and you're planning on coming i'd log in this week and make sure everything's working so that you're not panicking on saturday morning when you can't figure out how to get in let me know i'll help you between now and then So with that, let's go ahead and and talk about the concept of basic preparedness and the basics of being prepared for most things. Notice I didn't say everything. We're not going to talk about preparing for a meteor strike or the apocalypse or the zombies today. We're going to talk about the most basic preparedness for things that go wrong. I mean, we just had one hell of a hurricane in the Carolinas, and there probably are going to be, you know, more storms like this this year. And the problems in the Carolinas are not over just because the TV stopped talking about them every day. Um, storm season is still upon us. Next up, well, we're going to have winter. Then we're going to have blizzards and ice storms. Next thing you know, it'll be spring. It'll be time for mudslides and tornadoes and other fun stuff. Then we'll be back to summer. Gee, oh, yeah, now we got more storms. we got forest fires and everything. And, you know, we'll come back around to fall and hurricane season again if you think about it we don't have like a season that is specific to disasters like it's not like okay all the disasters tend to happen in the spring or in the fall we have different disasters that tend to happen during different seasons obviously things like ice storms tend to happen in the winter but we have things that go wrong to be blunt shit happens and depending on the size of, of what happens, you're going to be your own first responder for hours, for days, or sometimes even for weeks. We had one of the ice storms that hit a few years ago uh, that where we were without power for seven days. Where we were living in Arkansas at the time, I had people write into me after it was over that went fourteen to twenty-one days. Uh, without power and without being able to safely leave their homes and go anywhere and get anything because the conditions were just too dangerous and no one came to check on them. Fortunately, they made it through and they looked after their neighbors. But this kind of stuff happens, um, and this kind of is all summed up in you know one of my laws of life. I have thirty laws of life that that I live by and suggest other people do, and the seventh law of life is preparedness for hard times is nothing more. Than being a responsible adult, and and on that note, it's you know, it, TV sensationalizes, sensationalizes stuff, and maybe you've seen shows like Doomsday Preppers and the like, Doomsday Bunkers or whatever Doomsday junk they come up with next, but they make those people look crazy, and and some of them are, and some of them are just going along for the ride for their five minutes of fame, and they're really nothing like the characters they make them into on TV. There's some of those people I know personally. That when I saw the way they were portrayed, I couldn't believe it because the, the people that I know are nothing like that. But there are people that are flat out crazy, ready to wrap tinfoil around their head and whatnot. You see them, I mean, you see people that have YouTube channels about this stuff, and you listen to them, and they're serious and they're plumb crazy. But when it comes to actual basic preparedness, I really think it's the people that are not preppers that are crazy, n- not us preppers, because stuff goes wrong. And It just doesn't make any sense, and I do think it's the only responsible thing for adults to do. I mean, you look at it this way. Let's say you got the news that she's going to have a new baby. You're going to go out and get stuff for that baby so that you can put diapers on that baby, and you're going to go to the doctor up until the birth to make sure that everything's going right for mom. Um, when the baby gets a little older, you're going to put little things in the electrical outlets to keep them from shoving a fork in there and electrocuting themselves. You're going to baby-proof the house as they start walking. You're going to look for low, sharp corners and do something about that so the kid don't smack their head into it. I mean, you're going you're gonna to assess the situation, and you're going to get prepared to be able to care for and protect that child because you're an adult and you choose to bring it into the world. Well... What if you can't get food for that child when they're a little bit older? And you you can't do it for a week. See, you know the baby's coming. You're not sure if the disaster's coming. Well, here's the reality about disasters. Sooner or later, you're going to deal with one. Now, it might be something that's a a half-day inconvenience. I've almost never met anybody, and I usually, when we talk about what I do, I'll always ask, have you ever had your power go out? And I've almost never met a person saying, you know what? My power's never gone out once in my life. I'm sure somewhere, someplace that's the case. But, I mean, and then, you know, how long do you go out? Well, sometimes for a couple of hours, sometimes for a couple of days. Well, there you go. If you have hundreds of dollars worth of food in your refrigerator and it all goes bad, what is the cost of that loss? And if we can offset that with something like a $50 inverter and an extension cord and idling your car, doesn't it make sense to say, hey, I worked really hard for this food for my family, so I want to make sure it doesn't go bad and we don't lose the money and all the time and effort we put into it? If you are stuck at home and you need to have medications or somebody's injured, shouldn't you have the stuff you need to take care of it? Since you are capable, as a human being, of sitting down and making a list of the things that are likely to go wrong and the things you're likely to have to do without, since you have that ability to think ahead and comprehend that these things could be a problem... And since shoring them up is relatively easy, how are you possibly being responsible if you don't do it? How can you look your kids in the face? Or if you're, you know, maybe you live near home and you take care of like elderly parents, in the, you know that really can't look after themselves anymore. How can you look them in the face? How can you look? You have an older neighbor or something like that, or someone that has a little need, extra help needed. How can you look them in the face? How can you look anybody in the face that depends on you? And tell them you are responsible when you're capable of understanding this potential to to have to do without, and you're not willing to do anything about it. And the answer is you can't. And you know you can't. And if you went to your mirror right now, and you said, in spite of what this crazy guy says, um, I'm not going to be prepared, and I am still a responsible adult. I, I actually challenge you to do that, and you will immediately feel, you know what, he's right. I'm not being responsible here. And the good news is i got nothing to sell you. Um, at all. I do have a membership program that's for people that listen to the show all the time, and a lot of people use it, but that's it. That's all I got. I'm not going to end this thing with, here, go get my kit, or I'm going to tell you why not to do that. Um, I'm not here to sell you stuff. I'm here to sell you this knowledge for free. When I say sell you, I mean sell you on taking it in and using it because I care about this country, and I care about people. And the, the, the good news is this is not difficult, and this is being broken into two parts so that we can cover the basics thoroughly, but all we're covering is the basics, and then people will figure out from there where they want to go with their journey of preparedness themselves. But we have six basic survival need categories that we're going to go through today. But before we do, the easiest way to understand this is something I came up with almost 10 years ago called d DPICS, right? If the government can have a bunch of an an inaccur- acrony- acronyms, I can too. DPICS stands for disaster probability, impact scale and commonality. DPICS, DPICS, right? Um, and if you can remember DPICS, you'll probably be able to figure out what the letters mean. S is little, rest D P I C is all large. So disaster probability, DP. Impact scale, I. C, commonality. What's that all about? Disaster probability is one of these things that, and this is why people always think of like the crazy prep or crazy survivalist situation. Everybody focuses on the Hollywood disaster, right? The meteor, the comet, the nuclear war, the global pandemic, whatever it is. And those are the catastrophic disasters, high probability or low probability, high impact disasters, the disasters that are most likely to occur are losing your job, coming home and finding out your kid was rushed to the hospital and you got to go there and be with them, um, getting a terminal or serious illness diagnosis of a spouse, having a localized storm that does bad damage to your backyard. And as we move from personal to regional, we go to things like an eye storm and stuff like that, and we keep progressing and we go up to those huge disasters, let's say a global pandemic. Well, the smaller the number of people affected by disaster probability, you are more likely to individually experience it. So if you ask most grown adults, have you ever been fired from a job? Well, more than half of them will tell you, yes, at some point in my life, I lost a job. Okay? So there's a high probability that you'll lose a job. Again, the power goes out to your home. This is like a small neighborhood to regional. Hey, has, has it ever happened? Yeah, it's happened. Okay, have you ever been bitten by a zombie? No. Okay, well, you see how that works. You have, have you ever been had an, an atomic bomb dropped on your head? Well, no. So as we look at this scale, we start out with disaster probability. We figure out what the most probable disasters. And we bring some logic and rationality into it and say, and if you live on the coast of Florida... Uh, e- even though it could be a large regional event, you have a fairly high probability of being impacted by a hurricane. You have a very low to non-existent probability of being impacted by an ice storm. If you live in Maine, probably not going to get hit with a full-on hurricane. There's some pretty bad storms up there and all, but y- usually by the time they get there, hurricanes are not a huge threat. Ice storms, on the other hand, and blizzards are. So we take our geographic area and we find out the things that are most likely to occur to us based on the probability and the logic of where we are, the the regional threats. California, you better think about earthquakes a little bit. Texas, you better think about tornadoes. It's it's really simple. Then we move on to impact scale. Impact scale is the one where what I'm talking about is you're going, yeah, but Jack, if there is something that you know it's not completely out of, out of line from happening, that's huge, like a global pandemic some new disease that's highly contagious and highly lethal that overwhelms our medical systems or we have a true economic collapse, something that makes what happened in 2008-2009 look like a minor bump in the road. If one of those types of disasters occur, it's a lot worse. It is. So we do think about the impact scale, like how big of of an alteration in my life is this? And that's how we develop our own personal risk tolerance, And then, so we move in our journey of preparedness to wherever that risk tolerance takes us for our personal lives. But we're still going to start with the most probable things. We're going to shore that up, and then we're going to continue to improve that until we meet the level of our risk tolerance against impact scale. And then commonality. And commonality is the, the magic that makes this easy, even though it's not a good thing in general. In general, disasters all have commonalities, it doesn't matter what cut you off from your systems of support. It just matters that something did so. If you need water, it doesn't really matter why. You just need it. Does that make sense? And if you look at the big disasters, Hurricane Florence is a perfect example. When you see somebody on the television and they're saying, hey, we need help, send us you know, your donations and all. Of course, they always ask for money, but they ask for food, they ask for water, they ask for health and, and health and sanitation and medicine, comfort items. Those are the big ones. Those are the big five right there. And you hear it during the Haitian earthquake. Same list of things. Even when they're asking for money, when they tell you what they're going to do with your money, food, water, health, sanitation, comfort items, right? Clothing, things like that. So all these disasters, no matter where they are, no matter how come they happen, they have commonalities even losing your job. We're going to talk about food storage a little bit today. We're not going to do it in crazy, nut job ways. We're just going to develop a deep pantry so that we could go 30 or 60 days and maybe not have the greatest dinners every night, but everybody in the family would eat and have a full belly. right? Well, that's in case the economy collapses. No, how about you lose your job? How about you lose your job and you say the family's got to tighten their budget while dad or mom looks for a new job, but there's 60 days worth of food in the house? Didn't your, your whole life just get easier as soon as I said that? Put yourself in that scenario. You have just lost your job. You're looking at employment. You're looking at your shortfall in the bills. You're trying to figure out how to do what? Food on the table and a roof over the head. And I just wave a magic wand, and for 60 days, you don't have to worry about feeding your family. Food's there. So from some big giant thing that affects the whole world all the way down to this little bitty thing, all of it makes everything better because disasters have commonalities. All right. So let's move on and let's get into your six basic survival needs. Let's start with food. Food is the one that the industry talks about the most, the preparedness industry. It's no secret as to why. It's one of the easiest ones to sell you something, right? I, well, you know, you need food? Well, here's a pallet of MREs. You'll be good. And to be fair, you, you can be good that way. You really can't. But I I want you to start out with eat what you store and store what you eat. Because that means that you're not going to spend a dime that you wouldn't spend anyway because I don't sell food. You know, I don't. I don't have a, you know, a pallet of of Mountain House number 10 dehydrated or freeze-dried food to sell you. I don't have it. So I'm going to start with the most basic thing. You're going to eat today. You're going to eat tomorrow. You're going to eat the next day. And that means you know you're going to need to eat. So I recommend that families start out with something I call a food journal. What's a food journal? It's like a thirty-five cent notebook. You know, one of those little black and white, model little ones that you see at the stores. Yeah, you pick one of those up, or you, any book or stack of paper you want, and you put it on the counter in your your kitchen. And every time you eat anything, anytime your family eats anything, anytime the kids eat anything, anytime you use something as an ingredient, you write it in your food journal. You write it in there, and then you look at it and if it's something that stores easily and well without refrigeration or freezing you put a star next to it and when two three days later you use that same item again instead of writing it down again you put a check mark next to where you put it down the first time and you do this for two weeks to a month and you can start what we're going to talk about next call copy canning right away if you want to but by the time you do this for a month You're going to be able to go in there and say, here's 10 things that store well that my family always uses. Guess where you're going to start your food storage program with those things. And that will move us into copy canning. And we call it copy canning because that's the way everybody calls it in in the world of prepping. And because since it's two C's, it sounds clever. But it really ain't got nothing to do with cans. It could be in a box. It could be in a jar. I don't care what it is. I don't even, I'm not telling you what to buy. I'm telling you to figure out what you already buy and buy that. But let's say it's spaghetti sauce. So, if you're buying spaghetti sauce, you're probably also buying some sort of a noodle product. And so, what you do then is when you go to the store and you were going to pick up two jars of your favorite sauce and one package of your favorite noodles, you pick up three or four jars and two or three packages of the noodles. And when you bring them home, and you put them in your pantry, you put the newest stuff in the back and the oldest stuff in the front, just like they do at the store. And here's a little tip. When you're buying stuff at the store, if you pull the stuff from the back, it'll probably have a later expiration date on it because that's what they do. It's called fronting merchandise. So you start doing that at home. And when you get, let's say, a month to two months' worth of those two items, The next grocery store trip, you pick something else that has a star and a few check marks, and you do that again. And then all you do is when you take, let's say, you're going to make spaghetti for the family tonight, you take out a package of Italian sausage, you take out your jar of sauce, you take out your can of extra tomatoes because you like to make it a little bit better, right? And you take out your thing of noodles, and you use it. So what do you put on your shopping list for the next week? Just like you always do, you replace that stuff, don't you? Well, now that you've built up the supply, all you do is buy one group of it like you were going to do anyway. And when you bring it home, you just put it in the back of your pantry and just keep rotating it like that. You're, if you're, the, the type of food we're talking about here generally stores easily for a year. You're using it all the time anyway. It's not going to expire. It's not wasted. It's not craziness. You might have to organize things a little bit better. You might have to create some space so you have a little bit more room. But anybody can do this, and it's easy, and it might cost a little more along the way because this week you're buying a few extra things. But after you do this for about five to seven months, you won't ever have to do it again in most instances unless your diets change significantly, in which case you'll have to re-plan this. You do it with rice. We don't need to make five-gallon buckets full of rice and stack them to the ceiling in in an extra bedroom. But if you use a particular brand of rice, instead of buying one box or package, buy two or buy four or buy whatever it is and base it on your actual usage. And once we do that, then we can start looking at some of the things that are a little bit harder to store, like certain vegetables and stuff because they go bad, and we can... Go ahead and start maybe purchasing a little bit of specialized stuff. But we don't have to go to the survival store. We can go to a place like Harmony House or Amazon and buy dehydrated uh, celery, carrots, any kind of vegetable you can think of, you can buy dehydrated. Start using them a little bit in your cooking. Stick mostly to fresh, but use them so you get familiar with them. Build a basic deep pantry, and then all of a sudden... When you are having to do without, you still have these other things to enhance the flavor of foods. And you can get more involved, and you can get into different meat products and things like that. And we talk about that on the show all the time. But that's enough for the average person to be able to get by, maybe a little bit leaner than normal, but for a significant period of time. And this includes the garbage food that I wouldn't eat that you do. If you eat it, you eat it. I'm not going to judge you. You know, a lot of your, your chips and, 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 and cookies and stuff like that, a lot of that stuff has good long shelf life on it. If your kids are eating that, just simply build that out in the pantry. That way they're not upset when they have to do without because they're not really doing without. And then another thing that I think is really important here, and it's something that I don't know anybody else that talks about this in the preparedness world when it comes to food. Everybody in the house should be a cook. I mean, my, my granddaughter's here at my home every day, and she's like two and a quarter years old right now. Okay, not her. But we still get her involved. We'll have her, you know, help throw stuff away and things like that. But my grandson's like seven years old. And if I'm making chili and he's here, he's making, he's learning to cook with me. And by the time that boy's 10, 12 years old, I'll be able to say, You're making dinner tonight. And he might have a little help or whatever, but he can. When you do that, everybody starts getting involved. And that means if there is something really going wrong, everybody already is familiar with how to work together and how to cook. So if if mom's sick, kids can help cook when dad's taking care of mom. Or if there's some sort of major disaster, but everybody's really kind of okay, we get the whole family in the kitchen and we cook together, and it's it's already a thing. So it works out in so many different ways. And then we want to learn to create some storables of our own. So... We might start learning how to do things like meals in a jar. Remember those dehydrated vegetables? So we might actually then finally go out once this basics are prepared. I mean, we do buy from a company like Mountain House or Providing Pantry or something, and they sell things like beef cubes that are freeze-dried or chicken that's freeze-dried or whatever. We can take a quart jar. And we can layer that with different dehydrated vegetables, a little packet sealed up with uh, like a small Ziploc bag, thrown in there with uh, something like a, a bouillon cube or something, uh, some dehydrated vegetables, onions, garlic, meat, what have you, and make a meal, throw it in there. And if you have a standard vacuum sealer, they usually have an attachment to vacuum seal glass ball jars. So you, you, you can that. You, you dry can it is what it's called. You put it on your shelf. You put a label on it, what it is and the date that it was put in there. And on a day that you come home, and everybody is really tired, and you don't really want to do a lot of work with cooking, instead of wasting money and going out to eat and eating garbage, you put one or two of those jars down, and you add water and you simmer them and you make that whatever that you know beef stew or whatever you came up with is, and then you replace it. And then once you've done that, the average family can easily support themselves for 60 to 90 days without going to the store. Now, again, I promise you, you will not be as happy doing that as if you're going to the grocery store or the farmer's market or what have you. But you'll be okay. And you can, then you can take that into growing a garden and all that other stuff. But this is the thing to do first. And really, except till the very end there, it didn't cost any extra money. And you don't even have to do that last part. I just think you'll be happier and have more diversity if you need to rely on your preps. And it will work in your daily life because we've all had those days where we're like, I just don't feel like cooking tonight. You have your own basic uh, instant meals. Uh, next up, water. Do not run out and buy bottled water five minutes before there's a disaster. In general, I'm not big on buying bottled water in the first place, especially you know the cases of uh, water bottles that they have at Sam's Club and whatever. First of all, it's a, it's a huge amount of waste. The packaging, just for, don't even think about the bottles. The, you know, usually there's some cardboard and some plastic wrapping and all that. Just cut that off and throw that away. Then you have these bottles. One bottle, you pick it up, you drink it, it's gone. Now you got crinkly bottle. And if we, if we took all the bottles that are thrown into landfills every year and lined them up tip to top, uh, you could go around the world a couple times. And that's, that's a real statistic. While the people in California are being all retarded and worried about drinking straws, uh, putting plastic in the ocean, not even worried about water bottles, which are just way more of a problem than a, a drinking straw. Um, so there is an environmental impact. But, you know, I'm not an over-enthusiastic uh, environmentalist. I'm actually kind of an insane environmentalist, but I don't need you to be. Um, so I think there is that environmental impact, but it also just doesn't make sense from a financial standpoint. If you go to your sink right now and turn it on, perfectly good water comes out of it. The reason you're buying water for storage, so you have something to drink during a hurricane or something like this, is because you might not have any water. So all the water in the world that you could want is basically so cheap it's almost free out of your faucet right now. So what I recommend people do is take two-liter soda bottles, or like the one-gallon iced tea or apple juice jugs, anything with the hard, heavy plastic like that. Clean them out really good, fill them up with water, put a lid on them, and stick them somewhere in your house where you have room to store, you know, fifty to a hundred gallons of water minimum. And if you think about the difference between that. And bottled water stacked up like that in a typical like 16-ounce bottle, it it really just makes a lot more sense. Those types of jugs and the 2-liter soda bottles are designed to handle contents with high acid and under pressure. So it's very good, heavy-duty, food-grade plastic that won't rupture. When I first started doing this, we went out and bought 51-gallon jugs of spring water that come in the milk jug style. We put them in a closet. One day we went in there and we found four of them had failed and leaked out all over the floor. It wasn't a huge thing, but we immediately used all the rest of the water and we just didn't do that anymore. At the time, my father-in-law had not yet passed away and he was big on Arizona iced teas. Uh, He bought it by the one-gallon jug. Let me tell you, those jugs from Arizona tea are one of the best water storage implements you will ever get your hands on. If you don't drink stuff like you know, pre-made iced tea and and soda. I don't either. I guarantee you know someone who does. Ask them to save your bottles until you have enough bottles uh, to have that water stored up. And then don't be afraid to use that water. You know, use it from time to time. That'll rotate it. If you're really a worrywart, you can put one or two little drops of chlorine bleach in there to keep the water clean. There's really no need for it. If the bottle's clean and the water's clean, water doesn't go bad. It just doesn't. You don't have to worry about it. There has to be something in the water to be a contaminant, and there has to be something like sugar for it to feed upon. If you remove that, then sealed water is infinite. It might start to taste a little flat after a while, and that's why I recommend using it from time to time, or at least every once in a while, go ahead and use it to go water all your plants with it and fill them back up just to keep some rotation in it. But that's more for flavor than anything else. Um, I do think a filter of some sort is a good idea. Uh, The Berkey guy is a a dealer of Berkey water filtration systems. I think they're the best thing out there. And uh, you can find his website at directive21.com. Or you can, I, I don't care if you buy a Brita or a Pure or a RO or whatever, I think that filters are a good idea for good times and bad. And if we're storing filtered water, we've eliminated the possibility that there's some pathogen in there that's going to become worse over time. So I like a filter, but I don't get bent out of shape over it either. It's just a recommendation that I have. Next, if you know a disaster is coming and you are not leaving, you're doing what we call bugging in. you're staying the course, and uh, there's a potential that you might lose water pressure, Make sure that you have them plugged up. Well, go fill your bathtubs. That's water. Remember, there's water in the back tank of your toilet. Find any containers you can and fill them up. They actually make things to go into bathtubs that are like a plastic liner that you unfold and put in there because it can, what can happen is your your seal can fail. And the other thing that can happen sometimes is sewage lines get backed up and flooding, and then that sewage can be backed up into your you know, supposedly clean water. But, you know, if you have two or three bathtubs in the house, you can get these liners for the tubs and fill them all. But I'm a big believer in going ahead and just, you know, find every container you can and fill up with water. It amazes me when these disasters are coming and you see people running out and emptying the store shelves of water bottles just because they know they're not going to be there, and you know in their house there's a hundred things they could have filled up with water. Now, if they're leaving and they're going on the road and they're going to be refugees, and that happens to people they don't know they're going to be, then I understand to a degree. But I, you, know, you can load up a trunk load of those Arizona tea or uh, treetop apple juice bottles full of water, and they're good, solid bottles that are going to hold for you. I saw a guy on the Facebook group that we have for the show, and uh, when Florence was coming, he wasn't bugging out. He wanted to make sure he had extra water. He realized he had a box of 51-gallon Ziploc bags. He got a, a like a, a bigger box so they would sit nice. He filled up every one of those bags with water out of his sink. People got on them. That's not a real reliable way to store water. It's not for years, but for days. There's 50 gallons of water sitting there. If it does fail, it does fail. It wasn't the guy's only plan. It was, hey, I might as well put this extra 50 gallons of water up, and when this is over, if I don't need it, I'll dump them all out. Their plastic bags are reusable. It's not cost me anything. This is the mentality to have. If you have a pool, don't forget about it. How about this? You don't have water, but the sewers still work. The fact that you can go out to your pool with a bucket, and you have to worry about any kind of sanitizing or anything if you're doing this, and get a bucket of water out of your pool, come back into your house, pull the top off the backside of your toilet, dump it in there, and flush your toilet. Now you you don't have to worry about using good drinkable water for your toilet to flush and to keep your sanitation up that we'll talk about in a little bit. So don't forget about your pool. If you have filtering equipment, you can filter that water. You can boil it. It's still water you can drink if you have to. It's the last place I want to go, but I'll do it first. And rain catchment can be cheap to set up if you own your own home. If you get some food-grade IBCs, those are International bulk Containers, they're the big square-looking white tanks with the metal frames around them. You see on trucks going over. Usually on Craigslist, you can get a 330-gallon food-grade IBC for somewhere between 50 and $70. It's not super cheap, but it's inexpensive as a whole. And honestly, it is actually really cheap compared to say alternatives. I was at a Lowe's just last week and I saw a rain barrel that held, I think it was 55 gallons, that was $60. Well, those IBCs, again, hold 330 gallons. Two of those are 660 gallons of water you can set up with some downspouts and things. And you have to learn about a little some other stuff, like what's called first flush, which basically takes all the nastiness off your roof and discards it before it starts filling up your water. But, I mean, you talk about an easy way to store extra water, there you go. So you can look at kind of the progression there. Just start out with filling up all those, those free bottles. Next up, let's talk about shelter. This is one that people don't think a lot about because, well, I have a house. Well, okay, you might have to stay there and you might have to leave. So I'm not going to get deep into what you put in them, but what you need to do is develop a plan. And this might involve and probably should involve writing things down and making lists you need a bug out plan and a bug in plan. They're exactly what they sound like. There's a, something's gonna happen, and you know that it's really gonna be dangerous. Maybe they've issued, issued mandatory evacuation orders, so you're going to leave. What does that look like? You have a plan for that, and you know where you're gonna go in advance. Right now, you have forever and a day to figure out where you would go. This can range from camping to you know, doubling up with a relative. If you have an RV, you have an obvious solution. Um, it can be a, If it's a short duration, it can be a hotel. When disasters occur, what happens? The hotels are all booked. They're booked by people fleeing, and they're booked by responders coming in. If you're already prepared, you know where you'd go. You kind of identified wh- how far out you need to go to be safe. You already have that hotel picked out. And when you decide to go, you're immediately making a reservation. You're probably, you know, when people say there's no hotel rooms available, no, they're available. Just take it. Somebody got it. That someone can be you. But just have a plan of where you're going to go if you're going to leave. And if you're going to stay, how are you going to handle things? If there's potential flooding but you're not going to leave, you know, do you have a two-story home? What are the items that would go upstairs immediately? What are the ones that would go upstairs when it really looked like, you know, what are the priorities on that? So you make that plan, and you need to have basic things to fix problems that go that happen around you. You know, plastic and tape to fix a window. You know, once the storm stops, can makes things a lot more comfortable. Um, ways to do basic roof patching and things like that. The stuff you need to maintain your home. To make it livable and comfortable when you're not there, you will figure that out for yourself based on first of all, if you have items that you don't know how to use, it doesn't do you any good, right? So, you know what is your what is your handiness level, etc. But have basic stuff to maintain uh, your home and to fix things when they break. Additionally, have a designated shelter area. One of the things we really worry about in the 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 South for good reasons are tornadoes. They're spinning clouds of death. And you need to assess your home and figure out, like, if this happens, where's the best place for everybody to go and have the kids know. And don't make it scary. Don't make it scary. Do fun disaster drills, not scary ones. But kind of shore up your plans for staying and for going and where you would go to. And in the next the next episode, we'll talk about documentation planning to make that easier. For today, you just want to kind of assess the house Where are the dangerous parts? Where are the safer parts? Where does everybody meet? You know, where do you keep all your stuff? That's part of your shelter. All these other things we're talking about, water and food and energy, you need to think about, well, where do we keep the flashlights and batteries? That's part of the shelter overview, that logistic thing there. Moving on to energy. Here's the basics for energy. Number one, I think that everybody should have what I call a blackout kit. Um... We're going to talk about bug-out kits in the logistical part two of this for if you have to leave your home. Blackout kits are a lot more practical for more people, I think, that they're going to actually use them. And that is just your extra batteries, your flashlights, all of that stuff that you use when the lights go out. They should all be in a place, And so when you need to rely on the other things we're about to talk about, but the first thing you need to do is get out of the shower with soap in your eyes while your kids are crying and at least get a flashlight in the hands of the kids and get some stuff up so you can see what's going on and kind of put everything together. And start to figure out what your next plan is. That is one central. Or maybe if you have a two-story house and you do do a lot of living upstairs and downstairs both, kind of split it apart and have like a central location up and downstairs where you can just go get the stuff. That's all I'm saying. And you probably have flashlights and batteries and stuff like that already. But if they're strewn about, it doesn't do you any good when the lights go out. So put it all together in an organized way in a blackout kit. Next up, um, I think your primary backup power should be rechargeable AA and AAA batteries. I have recommendations. You can go, if you're listening to the commercial-free version of this, to the thesurvivalpodcast.com and look up 22.99. Just put that in our search box. And when you pull that up, you can look down in the resources, and you'll see some of the items that I recommend uh, that you can get on Amazon or you can buy them local. But... Those rechargeable batteries are probably the best thing. It's because we use them the most in our lives. Just like we're going to eat what we store and store what we eat, when it comes to energy, we're going to rely on backup for things that we use every day. I'll bet you in your house you have remote controls for just about everything. Your TV, um, your Apple TV, and stuff. Well, that one has its own internal battery. But there's probably video games and stuff like that. Uh, you probably have small flashlights like pen lights and things like that. Double A AA and AAA batteries are prob- probably one of the most prominent things that we use in our life. And like D's and C's generally are not very economical in a rechargeable format. So we use good quality uh, extra supply of good alkaline batteries for those. But you can buy little plastic things that you take and you pop two or three A batteries in them. And that will run your C or D battery device. It won't last as long because there's less storage capacity in two AA's compared to a C or a D, but it will work. And you can recharge those batteries to your heart's content. And the big thing is get your kids doing it. When they say the batteries are not working in the TV remote, well, take those batteries out and let me show you how the charger works. Put them in the charger, take two batteries out of the charger, and put them in the remote control and go, now your TV will work again for you or any of their electronic devices, etc., these double A's and triple A's, train your children. Train your spouse. When the batteries are dead, don't throw them away. Bring them over here, stick them in the charger, get new ones. When the power's out, there's nothing to teach, there's nothing to talk about. I need some batteries. Go get them. You know where they are. Make sure you put the old ones back. Now, how are we going to charge them when the power's out? I know we'll go buy a big, giant whole house generator. Well, if you have one and you're hooked up to natural gas, you're probably not having much to worry about. But that is not the next place to go. The next place to go is we want to get a 800 watt or better power inverter. 800 watts is a sweet spot for me, and I'll have a link to some items that fill that need in, in the uh, the notes today for this episode. But what we're going to do is we're going to get that that inverter, and we're going to take it and we're going to pop the lid up on the uh, hood on the truck or the car and we're going to clamp that inverter onto our car, and we're going to start it, and we're going to let it idle. We're going to run an extension cord and plug it into that inverter, and we're going to run that into the house, and then we have some of the little three-way hard plastic rubberized uh, power splitters, and you can only get you know, so much out of that, so we can't run the whole house on it, but we daggone sure can take those battery chargers from our blackout kit area, Set it on the kitchen table and plug it in, and we can charge those batteries forever. A tank of gas will idle a car for a long time. We'll get to gas in a second. But if we don't run anything but, most of those inverters will run an average refrigerator freezer unit in a kitchen. So we can pull that out. We can plug it in. We can run it for a couple hours. We can unplug it and go back to doing other things with that available power. And if we do that a few times a day, our food will keep through a disaster most of the time just by running it enough to keep it cold throw a bunch of blankets over the refrigerator don't open it unless you need to run it a few hours a day you'll be able to keep your food through a disaster and start eating it right away Okay. now since we're using our car as a generator this is what we're doing we're going to want to store gasoline I recommend that you store 60 gallons of gasoline minimum I really recommend 60 Per vehicle. This is another thing that's always in short supply. Here's the painless way to do that. Go out and get a gas can. Next time you fill your car, take the empty gas can with you. Fill the car, fill the gas can. You bought an extra five bucks, five gallons worth of gas. Take the gas can home. Have a designated safe place to store your gas. Whatever month you're in, get a sharpie marker and on both sides in the back of that gas can, write a big black letter. The number of the month. It's September. I would write a 9 if I was starting. Set it wherever you're going to store it. In October, get one gas can. Do it again. Write 10 on the gas can. Set it next to 9. November 11. And continue on until eventually you get to August of the next year. You write an 8 on it. When you get to September again, when it's time to go put gas in your car, in October or September, Take the number 9 can, dump it in your car, take the empty can to the gas station, buy the extra 5 gallons, bring it home, put it back. Guess what? After one year, you've got 60 gallons of gas reserved for your vehicle. That fuel will never be stored for more than a year because every month you're going to take one of those cans and dump it in your car. This means once you have that fuel stored, it never costs you another dime extra because Yeah, you're filling the can, but the 5-gallon was in the can when in the car. You do that, your gas is always rotated, it's never more than a year old, and you always have 60 gallons on hand. And then you can use that gas for other things. Just if that can gets empty, it goes to the store, and it goes to the gas station, gets refilled and gets put back into storage. That's all you have to do. If you knock out three months of it at once, you can refill all of them. It's okay. A couple extra months of storage, it'll be fine. You can put some stable in there if you want, but you really don't have to. I think at this point is when you look at buying a generator. This is this is the point. Now you look at buying a generator. If you buy a generator at this point, you can buy something like a, a Honda EU2000. It's a great generator for about thousand bucks. But you can go out and get, you know, for five or six hundred dollars, you can get like a Troy built. It's like a 6,500 watt generator. You can run your TV set, your refrigerator, or an extra freezer, uh, a window unit air conditioner to keep one room. In a good in a good shape, it's you know you're you're golden once you have a generator of that size. So you have to like picking a generator, something we've talked about before. We'll talk about it again, but I think that's the place in the plan that it makes sense to buy a generator. Why go out and buy a generator when you can buy a fifty dollar inverter and and do so many good things for yourself with the thirty forty fifty thousand dollar generator sitting in your driveway? Your car is a generator. Right? So you already have that. So let's use what we have first. Then you might want to think about building a battery bank for backup systems. This can be as simple as having one uh, marine-grade trolling battery, uh, deep-cycle marine-grade battery, or several of them wired together with some inverters on them and what have you. Once you have that, you have an indoor source of silent power. So if you're in a disaster and people are doing things like running around stealing, they generally like to do that at night in neighborhoods. They go out and loot in the middle of the day when they're looting stores, but when it comes to stealing from people's houses, they know people are generally there and not okay with it. So they run around stealing generators and stuff like that. When that generator's sitting there at night going, it's like saying, we're over here, we're over here, come take our stuff. So what you do is you use the generator during the day, You charge up your battery bank during the day, shut the generator off because you don't run generators in your house because you don't want to die, and that's the opposite of surviving. But then you can bring the generator inside where it's secure because it's shut off and quiet for the night, and your basic power needs to the night can be met through your battery backup system. That is the very basics of energy. I could do hours and hours on energy. That's the basics, and if people would do that much... They would get through most of these things. Health and sanitation. You need a basic first aid kit. If you go to Walmart and buy the 119 pieces uh, in a plastic case, they call a first aid kit, you will come home with 8 or 10 semi-useful items, 2 or 3 completely useless items, and 100 Band-Aids. Don't do that. Put your own basic first aid kit together based on your capability. It makes a lot of sense to take a basic first aid course from the American Red Cross, usually you can do that for free or someone around you does that. If you take that type of a course, you'll have the most important part, which is the knowledge where you can improvise with other things. Additionally, it will help you put together a good kit for your needs and your ability. Uh, CPR is not a bad idea either, but a first aid course really critical, I think, for most people to add to their skill set. Um, in addition to your basic first aid kit, make sure you have good prescription medications. So when I or not good, you know, extra prescription medications, if you're on high blood pressure medication, if you're on insulin because you're diabetic, if you're on any kind of medication that you have to take in a scheduled frequency, you should have minimum one month, better two months of the extra medication, talk to your doctor, explain you're not hoarding it so you can go sell it on the street, you just want to keep that extra in case something goes wrong and you can't get access to your medication and that once you have that amount stored up you're going to draw from it and each month or bi-weekly or whatever it is you refill your subscription, you're just going to buy the next month's worth and you're just going to rotate it. If you explain that to most doctors, they're more than happy to work with you, especially if it's not something that has street value to begin with. And a lot of the stuff that people really rely on to like not die or not go crazy or whatever – it doesn't have a, much, a, a huge street value. So uh, doctors will generally work with you to just understand, I'm just trying to maintain you know, a, an extra buffer of time in case I end up like one of these people on TV. And then in the middle of a situation where I'm dealing with my whole life being turned upside down and I'm incredibly stressed, I don't have my high blood pressure medication. Doc, I don't want that. Help me out here. and And they will almost always do it. So make sure you have your prescription meds. Make sure in your first aid kit you have basic over-the-counter medications. I'm a big believer in if you're ever prescribed a medication that's highly valuable from a standpoint of when you need it, you really need it, whatever it is, that if you end up not using the full prescription, you save it, you keep it in the refrigerator. If during a disaster you have someone in a lot of pain and you have a pain medication, I'm not worried about calling the doctor. As long as you know what you're doing, it's an appropriate dose. Um, So I really think that's an incredibly important thing to think about. Have the sanitation items that you need. Ladies have female sanitation products in in, in abundance, right, so that if you're stuck at home for three weeks and you have to deal with some of those situations, you can. Uh, But basically your ability to clean things up and to take care of the home, uh, sanitation, I also mean things like deodorant, soap, shampoo, etc. If you are stuck in a house, let's say four adults, for two weeks because of an ice storm, even though it's cold outside, adults sweat, you start to stink, you want to be able to take care of yourself, so make sure you have your sanitation items and have a plan for waste disposal. This includes a typical garbage, but it also includes human waste. There are situations where your plumbing may not work. If that is the case, you need to have some way to deal with it. You're not going to stop going for two weeks if you're stuck. The easiest solution is you get the blue stuff for pouring into porta-potties, a toilet seat, a five-gallon bucket, and a bag of hefty sacks. Yes, it's kind of nasty. What's the alternative? That's the easiest, cheapest way. I know there's other ways to approach this. If you have a septic tank... You need to be thinking about this too, because in even good times you have problems. We recently had a thing; we had bad flooding, and our septic ended up not working, and it was backing up into one of our toilets. Uh, We had a a, a, we we immediately took corrective action with it, and since it wasn't a broad scale disaster, we could get someone out to pump the tank out for us. But what if that had been wide scale uh, scale flooding? So you need to have you know just because you're on septic doesn't mean you're immune to this. You might be more likely to have to deal with this particular situation. So have a plan for it. Security. I'm going to start out with the most important thing. Procedures and protocols. A procedure is how you do something. The way you start a generator, there's a procedure for that. You, you, know, you make sure that the gas is turned on. Maybe there's a priming switch, and then you pull a cord. If it doesn't work, there's a choke or it's a keystone. But there's a procedure. There's a procedure for how you start a car. There's a procedure for how you bake a cake. Everything in life that we do has a procedure. A procedure doesn't necessarily mean complicated. It means a method by which something is done. There's a procedure to make a paper airplane. If you were a kid in school not so long ago, you probably made some and threw them to your friends in the classroom. The teacher wasn't looking. There's a procedure to make a milkshake. So you get it. Procedure is how we do something. A protocol is. We implement a specific behavior or group of procedures due to a situation. So our, pro, our, our protocol day-to-day for eating food out of the refrigerator probably is within some limit, you eat what you want when you want, open the door when you want to look in there. But a protocol when the power is out is we're only running the refrigerator for three hours a day on backup power. We're not going to open that except for a couple times a day we're going to assess things, and we're going to take the food that's most likely to go bad and eat it first. Okay. When it comes to security, when it comes to walking around your backyard and things like that, you're probably not walking around looking over your shoulder and things like that. But a protocol could be that if there's a, a big regional disaster and people do start looting, if you go outside, you take some, you never, never alone. You always have two people together. If somebody's working on something like the generator quits and needs to be refueled or something like that, and you're down there working on it and you have your back to somebody that might want to hurt you, the very fact that there's just another person there with eyes paying attention protects you while you're doing your thing. That's a protocol. And security is more about procedure and protocol than anything else. And having everybody in a family unit or group understand that we are now at this level of protocol, things have changed. Things are not hunky dory. There's a there's a there's amount a, an amount of risk that we all uh, assume every day. For instance, I believe in having a weapon and a means to defend yourself. I believe in concealed carry, but. The procedure and the protocol is more important than the weapon. We don't shoot somebody because they cut us off in in, in an intersection. We only shoot somebody to defend our life or the life of another person. And there's a protocol for how alert we are at any given time. You can't walk around in a completely hyper-alert state at all times. The stress will kill you young. But when certain things go down, and it might be that while this is going on during the day, Here's one set of protocols, and at night, if somebody goes outside, here's another set of protocols. Security protocols can even be things that don't have to do with another person. They have to do with just any risk. Your security is about the safety of your body and your mental health, yourself, and your family. It doesn't matter if you're dead because somebody hit you with a bat or because you are a dingbat and you got in your car and drove in the middle of an ice storm when you shouldn't. So a protocol might be that during this type of an ice storm, until we're absolutely sure that the roads are okay, even if we see the dingbat neighbor sliding down the road, we're not going to. Even if he makes it back okay, we're not going to. When we had a bad ice storm many years ago, my wife was still working a regular job, and she said, I feel guilty for not going in. And I said, the people that make you feel guilty there are not going to replace you for me if you die on the way to work. If you get in a life-threatening injury, and, but you don't die, and you end up paralyzed and I have to take care of you in a wheelchair for the rest of your life, those people making you feel guilty are not going to be there. So you're not going today, because it's not safe. That's an example of a protocol. All right, And I could sum all this up with my 17th law of life. I mentioned my 30 laws of life. My 17th law of life, and by saying it's my law of life doesn't mean I wrote it. It means I live by it. This is a well-known one. Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. If you do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people, sooner or later you're going to be known as one of three things. You're going to be known as the defendant, the patient, or the departed. You don't want to be any of those three things, so don't do those things. That's what procedure and protocol is about. Yes, have a means of defense. More importantly, know how to use it. A gun in the hands of somebody who's not trained, if somebody confronts you and you pull that gun out, you might end up just giving them a gun to hurt you with. So if whatever you have as a means of defense, know what you're going to do with it, when you're going to do it, and how you're going to do it. But I'll bookend it, and I'm going to come back under security to having procedures and protocols. In the end, that is the most important part of your security. How will you behave? What are the things that you will do and not do under given situations? You need For security, you need a protocol if you bug out and you are a two-car family, and those two vehicles are going to a place. How will you communicate with each other? If somebody notices something that's dangerous, how will they signal the other person? If you need to meet somewhere because dad was at work and mom was at home and the evacuation order was given because something critical happened and dad going home is dumb, how will you meet? There's a protocol that you come to for that. If you have a a driving age adolescent who has their own vehicle and they're at school, what is the protocol for them to link up with you under different scenarios? One, they come home. The other, they have to meet somewhere in rendezvous. What is the protocol for that? What don't they do? Protocols are as much about what you don't do as what you do do. Got it? So if you have solid procedures and protocols, usually everybody makes it through these situations alive and is as well off as is possible. Okay? Again, I want to come back as we wrap up today's episode. This really is the only responsible choice. Every day, damn near, if you look hard enough, you can see somebody somewhere hurting, somebody somewhere doing without, somebody somewhere stuck. And there's almost inevitably that there was some way that that person either didn't have to be in that situation or they could be a lot better off in that situation. Sooner or later, that person... Can be you this not happen to me thing. It's the same thing of people. Are, I'm not going to get cancer. Damn near a third of all people end up with cancer at some point in your life. You can't say I'll never that'll never happen to me. You know, you see the guy that's that's shoving potato chips in his mouth like by the handful and says he's not going to have a heart attack. He doesn't have to worry about it. You know that's foolish. Thinking well, there's never going to be a storm here that knocks out my power for a week and I can't go anywhere for a week. That's foolish. It's just as foolish. Because even though it might be less likely to occur than something like cancer, sad as that is, the reality is it still can. And I want you, if you're a family person, a you know, family you know, member, if you're a mom or a dad, just think about your kids in this. How can you be responsible if you, like nothing I said today actually costs that much money? Everything I said today, if you're strategic, if you buy used, if you think about it. Everything can be knocked out done for under a thousand, two thousand bucks maximum. Even a generator. Probably the biggest expense you'd have in everything I said today is a generator and the gasoline. And we can spend that money over time so that we mitigate its impact on our lives. We can take time to ramp up. We don't have to go do all this tomorrow. But if we start that walk and we'll along the way we'll become more advanced in our thinking, in our procedures, and our protocols. And eventually we end up in a lifestyle. Where we end up financially better off anyway, because the whole my whole philosophy is summed up, we should do things that make our life better even if nothing goes wrong. And all of these things today are things that you can use in your life even if nothing goes wrong. Coming in part two, we're going to talk about because like a lot of you that have listened for a long time or uh, that have been on this walk yourself are thinking there's a lot of things you left out. What about communications? What about documentation? What about all the logistics? How do we handle that? Again, this show went fairly long. I think we're well over an hour at this point. So to keep it short, I'm breaking all of that stuff into Part 2, which will come out. If you're listening to this on a day it came out, it will come out the next Tuesday, uh, which will be, I guess, the first Tuesday in October. And uh, so I, I really hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you're a long-term listener, I really think this is one that you can share with people. I think it gets them on the right track. And I think if you had this episode shared with you, you should go back and thank the person that did it. Because they care about you, and they want to make sure that you can take care of yourself and others around you. And and it's a pretty big gift for somebody to to, to give. I've been doing this now for over a decade. And I have heard from thousands of people in that decade that say, my life is better because of the steps that we took, because of the work that you do. That's the biggest dividend a man could ever receive, and I encourage you to begin your preparedness walk, because it really is the only responsible thing to do as an adult, because bad things do happen to good people. And with that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Um, guys, I do have a Amazon item of the day for you that kind of really fits in with this. We really didn't talk about heat and I'm going to talk a little bit about things like heat and cooling and stuff like that, and additional logistics in part two. Um, but the Amazon item of the day is the Big Buddy Heater. And uh, this is an item I've been recommending for, for years and have been officially recommending as an Amazon item of the day for over two years. As a propane heater. And uh, propane heaters are safe. I know it seems crazy to have an open flame in your home. And then you go turn your gas stove on. Wait a minute. Isn't that an open? Yeah. Um, but this is a very safe device. It has a CO2 sensor, and if the CO2 comes up to a certain level, it shuts itself off. as a tip-over thing, and I've tested that. If you tip it over, it shuts off immediately. You can run it on really low. You can run it really high. It produces a lot of heat. It will easily heat a room. And uh, I brought it around again today because winter's on the way. Yep, it's time for the ants to get ready for winter. And one of the things we don't want to do is freeze. Even here in Texas, we get some really cold days. This is one of the best products I know of. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the review. And remember, you can always support our show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You can also become a member of the Support Brigade if you want to support us. If you do that, you get discounts on so many of the things that we talk about on a daily basis that your membership will pay for itself. To learn more about that, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members. And that brings us to our song of the day. And we are in REO Speedwagon Week, and we are in another song that you probably haven't ever heard before, uh, unless you are a big-time fan of of REO Speedwagon and uh, their music. But it's definitely a lesser-known song. But you will hear, unlike yesterday, kind of the REO Speedwagon that you're accustomed to. This is off the first album released with Kevin Cronin as the lead singer of REO Speedwagon, and that's the voice you're, you're used to hearing uh, with all of the big mega-hits from REO Speedwagon. He then left again from 1973 to 1976. This song came out and with the album in uh, 1972. The song is called Golden Country, and it really still is the roots of REO Speedwagon. They were very much, you know, we had yesterday Anti-Establishment Man as their song, uh, Anti-Establishment Band very much a protest band of the early 70s late 60s era and uh, this song golden country talks about how great america is and in spite of it how we mistreat people talks a lot about racial inequality you know, we had our history segment today, and I had mentioned that the Bill of Rights uh, came out today. Another thing that happened on this day in history, on September 25th in uh, 1957, Central High School was integrated. This was the, uh, the nine first black students to go to Central High School in Arkansas. They had to send in 101st Airborne Unit to help these kids go to school. And there was still a lot of racial inequality going on in the 70s, specifically the early 70s when this song came out. There's, uh, this song touches on that as well. But the whole concept is having so much wealth and so much available and then still not helping those that need it the most. And when I look at where we are today, I think so many of those problems have not only been solved, but they have been obliterated. There's still racism. There's still inequality, there's still problems, but they're not the huge problems they used to be. And I think it's one of the reasons the left has lost its mind. Can you follow me on this. Here's what I'm saying. They had these huge things. The left was always about outrage. And they had these huge things to actually be outraged about. So many things have changed that those big battles either don't really exist or they exist in places the left won't touch. And hey guys, if you're new to the show, I'm not picking on the left to the exclusion of the right. This is just the the little less day in the barrel, so to say. Okay, but you know they can't speak up about uh, women's rights in places like Saudi Arabia because that would be disrespectful to another culture. Even though what's done to women in Saudi Arabia is atrocious. So all that's left when you you you've been built on outrage and anger over actual injustices when most of those problems have at least been addressed significantly is just the outrage. And then they look for things to be outraged about. This song's from a time when there were things to be outraged about, real things to be outraged about. So give it a listen and uh, we'll progress from here to some songs that you probably recognize a little bit more from REO Speedwagon as the week continues. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Crawl to your homes Your security lies In your bed of white foam You act concerned But then why turn away When a lady was a red From your doorstep With disaster, and never really care, and just what comes after.